Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 26th, 2017, and this is episode 2105, 2105 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Thursday, and that means that we should be doing what? We should be doing a listener call show. I'm going to punt the listener call show to tomorrow. I'm going to swap them out. I'm dealing, again, usually it's October, November-ish. I end up with a bad throat at some point. That shows the time to be this time. Um, so I'm doing my best. I've got a steaming hot mug of uh, bone stock made from a deer that I recently shot sitting in front of me. That's helping out the best it can. But I talk a lot less on a show where six other people do most of the talking. So I'm just going to invert the days and see if that gives my voice a little bit more recovery time until tomorrow. I've got a great show for you, though, today. We've got a lot of really cool stuff. I have Choosing Steel for Your Knife Projects with Patrick Rorman. I have Control of Flies Around Your Cattle the Natural Way from Darby Simpson. I have Dealing with Black Walnut Debris when uh, Farming Fish. Dealing with eczema from Gary Collins, fermenting the current bounty of hatch green chilies. Yeah, there's like, you know, this is the time of year when you can get the fresh uh, hatch green chilies uh, out of New Mexico, and there's festivals and all kinds of stuff like that. Man, those are great peppers, and we're going to talk about fermenting them with Erica Strauss. Then we're going to talk about dealing with law enforcement officers when you're the designated driver with a car full of drunk assholes. Yeah. Dan Omen, a former law enforcement officer, will talk to us about some of the things you need to consider if you take on that highly important duty and responsibility. And then I got a question for me. What is the sweet spot? One, cooking green vegetables. How do you make green vegetables good without overcooking cooking them but not undercooking them? All that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at the year in history. We're in the year 68, and... Um, we got another chapter of the year 68 before we move on to the year 69 AD. And when we get to 69, things are going to get kind of crazy, and we might hang out in that year for a while, too. Uh, but it's starting all right here. Uh, David Verne is titled today's segment from history, The Second String Quarterback. After Nero committed suicide, the Senate sent word to Galba that they were ready to accept him as emperor. He stays in Hispania to consolidate rule there and then begins to execute any governors or other public officials who didn't immediately support him. He went even further then by also executing their wives and children. To Romans, it was one thing to eliminate political opponents, but going after their families as well crossed the line. Back in Rome, Sabinus, the prefectorian prefect who had uh, supported Galba, decided that he wanted to be emperor and began trying to take control of Rome. He soon lost support of the Praetorians, who were still feeling guilty after betraying Nero, They weren't going to abandon Galba as quickly. They lure Sabinus into their camp, and they kill him. Galba leaves for Rome, and his army treats the march as a campaign. He orders them to sack any city that doesn't open its doors for him fast enough. The Senate begins to hear rumors about the purge in Spain, and Galba's reputation begins to plunge. He will destroy his remaining reputation when he encounters a new legion that Nero had raised just before his suicide, This legion was made up of former marines and sailors who were considered second class to legionnaires, and they asked that they could remain as a legion. Galba refuses, and when some of them draw their swords, he orders them to be attacked. They are massacred. 
and the survivors are decimated. Every one, in, one in every ten was killed. Galba's own soldiers are shocked that he would order such an archaic punishment. By the time he reaches Rome in October, he wasn't hailed as a hero, saving the city from a tyrant, but greeted as feared and a hated man. Since Galba was so old, his three advisors held great sway over him, and many suspected that they were ruling through him. His first policy was to begin repairing empire's finances, took the form of cutting social welfare programs, raising taxes, and seizing property, most of which ended up owned by his advisors. Even more hated, everyone's chief concern was who he would name as heir, since he would probably die soon. Otho, one of Nero's old drinking buddies, uh, had been exiled to a governorship in Hispania. He tries to get Galba to name him as heir. The frugal and disciplined Galba hated Otho, but Otho was convinced that Galba liked him and spent most of his time befriending and bribing the Praetorians, who were still upset at Galba for not paying them a bonus. My take by David Verne. Tactius writes about Galba that, quote, all pronounced him worthy of the empire until he became emperor, end quote. This reminds me of people thinking that people that think the second string quarterback is a better quarterback until he actually plays. Sometimes people are promoted above their competency level, and I think this is what happened with Gaul, but he continued to act like a military disciplinarian when political tact was needed. Yes, and this, the whole place will suffer for it. Now, remember, though, remember, Galba didn't want the job. Galba didn't want anything to do with this job. He had no interest in it. When Nero whacked one of the other governors, who suggested that he take the job, even though he didn't want it, Nero then named him an enemy of the state, And had people going out to whack him. And he said, oh, wait, wait a minute, I'm not going to have this. And then, of course, Nero basically destroys what he has left of his emperorship. And Galba ends there by default. Maybe he knew he was not right for the job. I'm just saying. Um, he was an old man. He probably didn't want to die any sooner than he, uh, than he was going to from natural causes at this point. He was a military general that didn't have to do much generaling anymore. And he was sucked back into this, and he handled it the only way he knew how, like a general. I'm not making excuses for him. I'm telling you what happened. He didn't have any idea what he was doing as an emperor at all. And watch what happens because of it. It's going to be an interesting ride from here forward with the year in history. And uh, I want to give you uh, some updates on some things. Uh, Crypto Gulch, just real quick. Ben Fitz, uh, my buddy that's running Crypto Gulch, He did do a drawing on everybody that entered to be one of the first 20 customers. He picked 20 and five reserves in case any of the 20 turn around and say, oh, I don't really want to do it now. Um, if you're one of those, I think you should have heard from him by now, uh, basically about that. But he sent out an email with a, a video showing how he did it as fair as possible to everyone and picked everybody you know, out of the, of the group. And I think he's going to keep using that list as he takes more customers going forward. So if you don't know what Crypto Gulch is, doesn't really matter right now because you can't get in and uh, become a customer anyway. But just wanted to throw that out there for those that were interested in it. And we will continue uh, to build Crypto Gulch and, and take you know new people as, uh, as we see fit. I'm actually really proud of Ben for the way that he handled this. I think it was uh, the only fair way that he could possibly handle this, given the circumstances. And I think it's a, it's a pretty autocratic way to do things, and I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. And I'm also pleased that he has been willing to not be greedy. It would be really easy right now for him to just take every single customer he could get as fast as he could get them, and God knows we could get him some, 
and try to go as quickly as he can with this. He wants to do this right. This is a new business venture. Uh, he's setting things up in a very professional way, and he's scaling, you know, over time, which makes me think of Galba the Emperor that couldn't emperor right, okay? Instead of trying to take everything on at once, he's taking on a little bit at a time and doing a great job, and I think that's important. He's doing, you know, basically proof of concept as he goes, building something that's never been done quite this way before. And uh, I'm very excited to be part of it with him. The other thing I want to give you an update on is uh, the Quail Tracker program has uh, fully funded on Kickstarter. So if you've uh, supported that Kickstarter uh, to get your own Quail Tracker system or any of the other stuff you can get there, um, you will be, you know, be getting your stuff, I, I think we said early spring. I think we'll beat that, um, depending on how many more people get on board with it, I guess will affect delivery. Uh, but we... We played our cards pretty safe there ourselves. But the Quail Tracker is awesome, guys. Look, if you live in suburban America and you want to put fresh poultry on your table in the form of meat and eggs or just eggs, there's nothing that will do it better than quail. And there is nothing that will do a better job in doing it, even if you live in the middle of an HOA blue hair hell hole, you can do it with quail with the Quail Tracker. And you can do it in a way that's not cramming them into a box in your garage. You can actually let them get out and be birds. You can improve your land. You can make compost. You can make fresh eggs. You can make fresh meat. You can breed your own birds. You can do all that stuff and more with the quail tracker system. Again, we have two years of work and research and development into this system to build it modular and in the way that's best for the birds and best for the people. And I'm telling you, a 12-year-old child can maintain this system. So there's no, it's lightweight. It's easy to move. It's easy to understand, and it's pretty much you get the system, and you put quail in it. And, and you get food and water, and you're ready to go out of the gate. You can check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes today. And uh, we, again, have the Kickstarter running for a couple more weeks. So if you'd like to get in on the special deal that we have for Kickstarter supporters and get your quail tracker uh, and, and get into the business of producing your own meat and eggs with quail, Uh, get on board and come on over. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get uh, into your main stuff today. And we have our first question for Patrick Rorman on choosing steel from knives, specifically from the standpoint of using steel from like old leaf springs and stuff like that. Hey guys, it's Patrick here with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Alan from Southwest PA. Hello, Patrick. I'm a novice blacksmith and Blade maker, the steel is most readily available spring, leaf, and coil. If I master hardening and tempering the blades, what kind of durability might I expect? Not thinking of a high art here, just tough knives. I can use and make myself. Skinners, bowies, throwing knives, chisels, etc. Can I make a knife to last a lifetime, or is it just practice with free steel? The guy who started showing me how to forge a blade passed on now, and I miss him told me to stay away from cracks or breaks in leaf springs, micro-cracks. How important is this? Thanks, Alan. Alan, um, it's really hard for me to answer your question because I have not messed with a whole lot of springs, leaves, and coils. I'm of the mindset that if I'm going to spend time, my time, my energy, and my money into uh, making something, I'm going to work only with the best quality material out there. With that being said, when you're starting to learn, it's great to learn on something that's cheap, readily available, and free. So 
I wouldn't discourage you from using what you have, but I can't really tell you what you should expect from leaf springs, coils, and that sort of thing. Um, I can tell you that there's lots of people out there that use that stuff. They make decent knives that they can pound on and beat on and, and does great. And like you mentioned, probably one of the biggest uh, mistakes people make, especially early on, is forging when the steel's too cold, creating cracks in the steel. Um, a lot of times you won't see them until the blade breaks. So that's uh, very important to make sure that your steel is hot enough and uh, not, not be hammering on the steel when it gets too cold because it will create cracks and it will lead to failures. Um, on the flip side of that, one of the worst things you can do is overheat your steel and start toasting it. So uh, there's a range for all your steels, which you should be working in. And it's best, I prefer to have uh, some sort of readout. You know, you can do that stuff by sight, but uh, sight can be deceiving based on the lighting around you. There's so many factors that come into forging, but are you doing this just to have fun, just to make something, or are you doing it for a living or a profession like I am? So for me, I can't afford to send something out that could possibly have a micro crack in it because my reputation's at stake. Um, if you're just making knives, giving them away to your friends and your family and just beating on them, hey, one breaks, no big deal. In fact, uh, that's a good way to learn, you know, what you did wrong and how to improve. So anyways, I hope this helps you out. Thank you for your question. Once again, this has been Patrick with MT Knives, today's expert counsel question of the week, reminding you to stay beyond razor sharp. Thank you. Have a great day. I guess adding to that, I, I think you should look at a knife that you're making, and I think you should ask yourself, what's the most expensive component in that knife? And I agree, like, if you're just making your first couple knives, I'd use whatever you can get. But once you get to the point where you reasonably know that when I start making this knife, the end result is going to be a decent blade. I'm going to end up with a decent blade. I'm not going to end up with something I'm going to throw away or something like that because it just didn't work out. Because that does happen, especially when you're doing your own forging and you're not just using a, a, you know, a blank kit or something. Um, in some of your first knives, the heat treating doesn't go right or, or whatever. Well, you might say that the most expensive component in that knife is the steel. And financially, you might be right. Because it depends on what material you're using for scales. Steel's not that expensive. Uh, the scales could be, you know, when I say scales, I mean handle material could be more expensive. You can have some money and maybe the pins, you know, the mosaic pins or whatever you use on it. But that's probably not that much I mean, for how little you use to make one knife. So the steel might economically be the most expensive thing because, of course, you can use, you know, you can get wood all over the place. You piece of black walnut, you know, that you've trimmed off a tree and make some really nice handles out of it. So you might not have any money financially into the, the handles at all. So it might be the steel. But it's not the most expensive component in the knife. The most expensive component in the knife is your time. So... To me, once you get to the point where you you are good enough at your craft that you expect a decent knife to come out of it, I would stick to steel that's you know 
that's well known as being good steel to make knives with because I don't think you're that deep into it. And it's, you know, like if you're doing it as a hobby, like that might seem easier to use like leaf springs and coils and stuff. My issue there, though, is if you're doing it as a hobby, you're probably not making that many knives. Maybe a couple a month. So how much money would you really have tied up in steel once you get decent at what you're doing? Because that time is sunk into that project. Whether that knife is made with a piece of steel that came out of an old Ford truck's leaf spring um, and is an okay knife, or it's made of a steel that was like an O2 tool steel or something like that or what have you, um, it's it's got the same amount of time and effort into it. And that cost is a sunken cost. You can't ever get it back out of it. So if it's made with a poor quality steel that has a flaw in it, that time is sunk into something that's just not ever going to be what it could have been. So I would steer you and anybody in the world of making knives, or I would look at any material that you make anything with, if it is an inferior material It's fine for learning, but once the learning's done, let's use the proper material so we don't have a deep sunk cost of labor and your passion and, and your effort tied up in something that's not quite what you wished it was. That's, that's kind of how I look at it. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on the control of flies around your cows. The, uh, the natural way. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. I'm calling in today to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council, and today I have a question from Emily all the way up in Alberta, Canada. And Emily's question is pretty simple, and she wants to know if I have any advice on fly control. Uh, their context is they're in central Alberta. They're on a commercial dairy farm, and they're currently using a product called Conk. And sticky paper, but she was wondering if we had any other, maybe more organic methods. And Emily, actually, yes, I do. Uh, we've got something that um, we've used here on our farm a couple of times uh, with pretty good success, actually. It does it does have a little bit of a drawback, but it is very effective. Um, and I'll, I'll have Jack link a copy of a blog article that I wrote on my website into the show notes from today. Um, but this really does work. Uh, and, and basically what you're using is uh, something like, you know, about a cup of vegetable oil. And obviously you can scale this up for however much you need to apply. A couple of cups of white vinegar, a couple or one cup of water, and then a, a tablespoon of an essential oil. And we have we have used uh, citronella, uh, citrus, something like mint or eucalyptus would probably also work. Uh, but the citrus and the citronella work really well. I've actually mixed those together as well. And basically you just take and you shake this stuff up um, and then you spray it on the cows. And it really, really does work. Uh, it works really well, actually. I mean, it doesn't eliminate them 100%, but I would say that it reduces your flies by 80 or 90%. The biggest issue we have had is, well, number one, every time you want to apply this stuff, you've got to shake this bottle vigorously because oil and water and essential oils basically separate into three separate entities within a container. Um, and then because we're doing rotational grazing every day, we've got the cows out in a you know, anywhere, depending on, you know, the size of the herd and the time of the year, a, a paddock might be a half of an acre or an acre and a half. So it's not like we've got them all grouped up where we can just easily apply this. We've kind of got to walk around and, and, and spray them individually. Uh, I can imagine on your farm, since, since it's dairy, they're coming back into a facility where they're getting milked once a day and you'd have 
the opportunity to uh, to apply this uh, much more easily than I do. Um, also, it wears off, uh, particularly if it rains. Once it rains, the stuff is gone. Um, but it will work really well for a day. It works pretty well for a couple of days, but by day three or four, you, you pretty well, you've got to reapply it. Um, and then in my personal context here, when I'm trying to apply this stuff out in the pasture, you know, the first couple, three days, the cows don't know what's going on and I can get them sprayed pretty well. After that, they see me coming, they see the bottle, they recognize what it is, they don't like to be sprayed, and they take off running. I mean, basically at that point, I've got to sneak up behind them and, and spray them. So it's not something that we do as often as we would like to do just because of those contextual issues, but I can tell you that this does work, and it's pretty organic in nature. Um I, I think, again, in your context, being that you've probably got a, a milking facility and the cows are coming to you every day and probably walking in a narrow passageway, you'd have a much easier uh, way to apply it. You could probably mix this up in like a two-gallon or three-gallon, you know, container. Uh, like you, you would mix up to put, uh, you know, a small batch of fertilizer or, dare I say, weed killer in. Um, but you could buy one of those little two-gallon containers, and as they're walking through this narrow area, just give them a little shower. And I think you'd find it pretty effective. Um, you know, we like I said, we've had really good success with this. We just don't apply it as often as we should because of contextual issues. Now, I also have a neighbor who uses a sulfur salt block in the uh, summertime. And it, it's basically, it's, it's a, like a normal mineral salt block that you'd set out for the animals. Uh, but it's got a yellow color. It's got sulfur. And I don't know where the sulfur comes from or, you know, what the derivative is, but it's got a high load of sulfur in it. And he swears by those things for uh, fly control. And I, I have tried saying that for my cows, and I just found that they didn't, lick that salt as much as they would lick the other salt, which tells me maybe they don't like the sulfur taste. Who can blame them? But again, that's that's something he uses. He swears by it. Uh, he thinks it works really, really well. That's something else you could investigate. Uh, that's organic-ish. I mean, it's it's not as um, uh, benign as the, the, the spray probably that we're putting on them, but it's certainly a lot better than a, a commercial chemical application of something you might put onto your animals. So again, I'll link this, uh, this blog article, uh, in the show notes today, or, or more so I'll ask Jack to link in the, the, the show notes for today and you can, you can read through it. And I, I think you could, you could study this. You could probably find some other things that are very similar to this online and give them a shot. Maybe do a little test batch, see how it works out for you. But uh, there are definitely some options out there that are more organic in nature than chemicals that you put on your animals. So hopefully, Emily, that helps you and it's effective for you. Uh, as always, thanks for sending in the questions, guys. Keep them coming. Love answering them for you. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, you can head out to the DarbySimpson.com website or you can check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast that I mentioned earlier. That's a weekly podcast I, I do with my friend Diego Footer. You can find that in iTunes. Just type in Grass-Fed Life. And if you like it, please leave us uh, some, some feedback out there. Let us know what you think. Uh, feedback really helps us grow the podcast audience. It gets it out in front of more people. Um, and you can listen in to over 70 hours of podcasts now. Uh, you can also still find it at Diego's website, which is permaculturevoices.com. Just click on the Grass-Fed Life icon. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. 
All right, good simple solution from Darby Simpson. I can just see Darby now sneaking up on a cow to spray it. Anyway, next question I have is for Jeff Lawton on dealing with black walnut around fish ponds. Jeff, take it away. Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Jordan in the Middle East where I'm working on projects uh, that we're uh, running courses and internships on. So my question here is from Mike. Um, in relation to uh, black walnuts and their effect on uh, fish ponds and the production mainly of uh, fish for meat yield and recreation. Um, the, the problem here is um, the black walnut shells as well as a small degree the actual um, leaves, they are going to affect the pond. It will depend how much you can hold them back from getting into the pond. Obviously, they're overhanging ponds and they're dropping um, their, uh, their, their, their nuts and their shells and their leaves into the pond. It, there is going to be an effect. The less, the better. A few leaves won't really matter. Um, you say that the trees are um, five to ten years are out of timber harvest, so uh, that's not long to go. Um, you might have to build um, earth mounds to stop the general roll of, of, of seeds and uh, leaves blowing into the ponds. Uh, you might have to sacrifice things for five years so it won't be quite as good and there may be some fish kills. Um, it's very hard to say. Um, with gardens, of course, we can, we can build up um, raised beds. Um, solid raised beds would be good on contour, even better. Um, and um, we could even put down a barrier to stop roots getting in. But I think your main problem would be the, uh, the nutshells. Um, a few leaves won't really matter. If you've got uh, plenty of compost, organic matter, and, um, and good thick mulch, you'll counteract most of it there in the ground base. Um, but water is nutrient in solution, so it's pretty hard to say what's going to get into the ponds um, but my advice would be caution and uh, try and um, relieve the uh, downward flow of um, organic matter towards the ponds and um, see if you can set up uh, silt traps, leaf traps, walnut traps and um, do the best you can. Personally, I wouldn't be hugely concerned about the leaves. The issue I have is the, the husks on the nuts is the, the big issue. And unless the tree's like overhanging the pond, I wouldn't worry about that even that much either, especially if you kind of, you know, police up your black walnuts in that area and do something with them. The husks are just so concentrated with juglone compared to the leaves, the sticks, and, and what have you. And I I grew up where black walnuts grew wild all over the place. And, you know, they grew in forests and there was streams and there was trout. And the trout weren't floating or anything. They were alive and they were in there. So just the, the, the mere proximity is not a problem. A large amount of the husks, though, can certainly be toxic. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. There's an old survival trick, and this is highly illegal, by the way, but if you get, like, a really big sack of... Uh, black walnuts, did, where the husks, have, especially where they've started to turn brown and you kind of beat them up really good, put a couple rocks in that sack, tie a rope to it, find like a fishing hole somewhere and drop it down in there. A lot of times you'll have fish come up um, from the to toxic effects of the juglone. And when you remove the bag, you you know it dissipates after time and it, it goes away. 
It's not a good thing to do. I'm not suggesting you do it. But it's a good thing to know if you ever ended up in an actual survival situation, had a lot of black walnuts around in a fishing hole in a sack. Of course, then you can just eat black walnuts. Uh, but that does show us that we can have a problem from that. It's, it's kind of amazing how much comes out of those husks, so much so that What we used to do with our traps, like a lot of, you can buy like a browning dye and stuff like that for your leg, like your conibear and your leg hole traps and stuff like that so that they don't rust on you when you're out running a trap line. What we used to do is we would get a 55 gallon drum, build a fire underneath it to heat it up and stir in a whole bunch of very, very ripe, uh, black walnut holes. And then, Dipping your trap into that will actually brown the steel dye, basically create a brown patina on it, uh, similar to what you would do with a rifle. In fact, some some old timers that made muzzle loaders and things, instead of bluing the steel, uh, would brown the the, the muzzle loader steel with black walnut dye. So that that kind of gives you an idea of why you don't really want it in your fish pond. And the smaller the body of the water, the more that's true, and the more you get, the worse it is. So I would just focus on making sure that you keep the nuts policed up when they drop uh, in in some way that they don't end up in the water. And then I wouldn't really worry about it. It's been there that long that they're you know if they're near harvest size for timber, those trees have been there an awful long time. And unless it's a brand new pond, somehow it's managed to coexist. Uh, let's take another one. This one I have for uh, Gary Collins on eczema. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss all things primal, paleo, nutrition, healthy lifestyle, living off the grid, and just life simplicity in general, and uh, where I sell my books and my supplement products as well and have a great blog. I know I haven't done anything lately. I will write a blog on that. I've been very busy. But the question today, eczema, is something I'm actually very familiar with. I grew up with terrible eczema as a kid. I uh, went to all kinds of doctors, allergy specialists, dermatologists, took allergy pills, allergy shots. Also had really bad asthma that went along with it, so I was on inhalers and all kinds of stuff. It, it just basically reduced some of the symptoms, but it never got to the root cause until, you know, about a decade ago, I changed my diet, my lifestyle, and kind of figured this stuff out for me. And I've actually worked with other people as a practitioner and helped them. Now, I have good information as far as uh, the person who sent this question and his wife eats a fairly clean uh, diet, is health considered healthy, but didn't get into the really nuances of the diet, what's there. There's two causes. Uh, eczema is an autoimmune response. So, and it, it, when you're when you're having a immune response, sometimes it will show itself in skin inflammation. There's inflammation going in your body. Period. But when people are really uh, suffering or unhealthy, not this is not to say his wife's unhealthy. You will see it in their skin and in their eyes. That's where I can pick up on it. It could be from product she's using and actually applying to her skin, such as laundry detergent, um, lotions, perfumes, uh, shampoos. That could be a cause of it, or what it usually is, is dietary. And like I said, you're having uh, an autoimmune reaction to the foods you're consuming. Now, it's very, very difficult to figure this out. Trust me, 
it took me a while to figure it out. And as I age, things change and I have weird foods that never bothered me all my life suddenly bother me and foods that I never could eat. Now I can eat and I'm like, oh, wow, that's weird. It's just your body's always changing. I've had many surgeries, screwed up my whole gut flora, rebuilt it, and it's just different. So that could be part of it too. If you have a major surgery and, and you're, you know, have taken a lot of antibiotics, you have to rebuild that gut flora. And what I've noticed that happens is when it's rebuilt, wiped out that badly, you end up with these weird intolerances because your gut flora actually changes. It's like a, it's like a fingerprint, but not permanent is a way it, it, it's unique to you, but it can change. So, uh, I would ask that has she had any major surgeries in her past that possibly could have caused an intolerance that she would have not normally had. Now the, the, the skin irritants, she could even be allergic to cotton. I, I mean, I've met people who are allergic to cotton. So almost every clothing they wear will cause an allergic reaction. So there's a bunch of things. And he talked about the ALCAT test, which is really popular with holistic practitioners. Ooh, that one's, that one's dicey. They love to use that thing to lure you into a very expensive supplement and one-on-one package, thousands of dollars. I'm not saying all, but I have seen that. And the jury's out whether it's a reliable test or not. Here is the most reliable test I can give you. It is the pinprick test, allergy test. It's where they go in. This is the oldest school test, and I'll show you, uh, explain a derivative of it. You go into an, uh, an allergist, and they'll actually put a small prick. You'll, you'll lay on your back. You take your shirt off. They prick a bunch of marks on your back, and then they use the fluid uh, form of the food or irrit it could be anything it can be like I said cotton food uh, they have a whole list I would concentrate on food first you'll probably have to go through multiple sets and they measure the irritation to that pricked spot to that specific food or item it is incredibly efficient and accurate I've had this test several times over my life and the blood test, I've taken several of those, and they're totally incorrect most of the time. I mean, they say I'm allergic to things that I'm not allergic to at all. Then they say I'm totally fine on other things that literally light me up like a Christmas tree. So those are the blood tests. Another way, if you want to just test it out, is use your non-dominant hand and on your wrist, because it's a very sensitive area, you can rub a food or item three nights in a row before you go to bed just kind of rub it in that area and if you have a reaction after three days if you start to see hives or you may see it right away that's a telltale sign that you have uh, you're having a having a reaction to it so that's a simple way the food side is incredibly complicated that's why i'm recommending the prick test because it might be able to uh skin prick that didn't come out right um you might that might give you a direction, but I would first look at foods. The biggest cause of eczema is dairy and grains. That is what I have found across the board with myself, with people I've worked with. Those are the two biggies um, right out of the gate. I would look at a a food item that you've eaten 
all your life that doesn't give you, you don't think it gives you any problems as far as you're not having a stomach ache, you know, you're not having the usual headache, maybe, you know, puffy eyes, itchy throat. I would look at those foods and, and take those out one by one and just see and, and see if it makes a difference. Now, it's going to take like two weeks to four weeks for you to really tell because eczema, again, immunological, it takes you a while to kind of heal, build back up, get rid of that inflammation. Also, a topical uh, thing, the creams, and they don't work too well, and some of the oils, even natural, they tend to make it worse sometimes. I have always used a, a product called Aloe Life Skin Gel. You can get it at any health food store. This is the best thing I have found for skin irritations and eczema. Um, I hope that helps. I know that was a little long-winded, but eczema, there, there, there's a lot of factors that could go into that. But I would say on average, it's usually a food item because it's continuous. You know, or the, another one, like I said, is, is an allergy to cotton. That is a big one. So I would kind of look into that, Get try and contact a – you can go to any uh, dermatologist or uh, aller, a doctor who specializes in allergies. You don't necessarily have to go to a holistic doctor. Uh, ear, ear, nose, and throat doctors will do the testing as well. I would just ask them, go, hey, I want the skin prick allergy test, and I just say that's what I want and start with food items. And I would start with foods that you eat commonly that you eat regularly. That's where I would go. Like I said, a lot of people are allergic to things like citrus and they don't even know it. So I would start there. I hope that helps again. Like I said, long-winded. Again, make sure to uh, go to my website. I have a lot of great information, primalpowermethod.com. Thanks again. Good stuff from Gary Collins as always. It's what we've come to expect. Next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss on fermentation of hatch green chilies, and yes, it will make you hungry. Hey guys, Erica Strauss from Northwest Edible Life calling in this week to answer a question from Brandon in New Mexico about fermenting hatch green chilies. Brandon wants to know if I can give him a good recipe for fermenting hatch green chilies and maybe some ideas with how to tweak some recipes with garlic and onion. He says... Erica, I've heard you and Jack talk about the health benefits of fermented foods so often on the Survival Podcast. I've become interested in seeing if I can pair my love for green chilies with a new way of preserving them. We just wrapped up green chili season here in New Mexico, and usually I buy our roasted green chilies at the grower's market and then peel and freeze them. Is it possible to ferment pre-frozen chilies? Does the roasting process kill the beneficial bacteria we need? Great questions. Let me get into the sort of specific questions about fermenting pre-frozen or pre-cooked chilies, and then I'll go ahead and give a few options in terms of recipes that Brandon can consider. So in terms of can you ferment cooked and or frozen vegetables? Yes, absolutely. The beneficial bacteria will act on the carbohydrate in ferment in uh, cooked or frozen vegetables the same way it will in raw vegetables. 
That's not an issue. However, two things to consider. The first is that the texture on your cooked and or frozen vegetables is already very soft because the cooking process and the freezing process breaks down cell walls in a way uh, similar actually to how fermentation begins to break down cell walls a little bit. So what I would do is stick with a shorter fermenting time in any fermentation recipe where the texture is kind of important. One way to get around this is just choose fermentation recipes like salsas or sauces where that texture issue is not going to matter and the additional flavor you get from the roasting vegetable is going to be a real asset. The second thing with a pre-cooked vegetable or a frozen vegetable is you are going to need to introduce beneficial bacteria to the ferment. The roasting process is going to kill off any beneficial bacteria that existed on those chilies, so you're going to need to add them. The easiest way to do this is just mix some fresh non-cooked vegetable into the ferment along with your roasted chilies. Onions or garlic are a great choice here flavor-wise and an easy way to ensure you will have a nice starter colony of beneficial bacteria that will then sort of leap onto your cooked chili and uh, go on and take the fermentation from there. Another option is you can use a starter culture. There's purchase starter cultures you can get. You can also tip in just a little bit of brine from a mature ferment like sauerkraut or a fermented pickle brine. So in terms of recipe ideas, yeah, I've got plenty for you. Um, you're talking about hatch chilies. You're from New Mexico. I'm going to assume you know your chilies and you take them very seriously. Quick disclaimer, I am from the Seattle area and we have a lot of knowledge of crab and salmon and our chili cred is pretty much zero. So I'm going to do my best to give you some recipes that I know personally have worked very well with other green chilies when I've done them. But I know hatch chilies are kind of special. I know they really have kind of a unique flavor. Please Please do modify based on what you know about hatch chilies. And I know there are, you know, I know hatch chilies can have a range of heat. Um, some of these recipes I'm going to give you are going to be a little bit better with chilies that have quite a kick. So you might want to either choose one of the varieties that's a little bit spicier or blend your hatch chilies with some other chilies that are going to give you more of a kick. So that kind of disclaimer out of the way, here's a couple things I would suggest. You can lacto ferment your roasted peppers. Um, very interesting flavor on these because you get the sweet butteriness of the roasted pepper. You get a very soft texture, um, and you can absolutely do this with hatch chilies, with roasted red peppers, with jalapenos, any pepper that has a fairly decent um, thick flesh that roasts really nicely. So you'll need to add some fresh veg or starter culture to jumpstart the fermentation because the roasted peppers here are microbe free like we discussed. So onion and garlic are going to get the job done. What you want to do is blister roast your peppers as per usual. Sounds like you can buy them pre-roasted at the farmer's market. Love that. Um, remove skins and seeds. If you have large chunks of pepper, consider slicing them into smaller pieces. Just makes the ferment a little bit uh, more uniform and a little easier to get out of the jar. And then fill a very clean but small, like small to medium sized jar, a wide mouth pint jar would probably work pretty well. About three quarters full with roasted pepper halves or pieces. Add in two cloves of peeled and just lightly smashed garlic and a round of white or yellow onion. Top everything with a four to five percent brine. Work any bubbles out so the brine gets down and in around those peppers. Weight everything down well and then cover loosely with a lid. At this point, standard fermentation. Ferment about three days, burp day Check the flavor after about three days. You should notice a little bit of a nice fermentation tang, but the sweetness of those roasted peppers shouldn't be completely overwhelmed. If you like a little more tang, go ahead and give that ferment another two to three days until the flavor has developed to your taste and then move it into the refrigerator. 
always a great option for green peppers, fermented pepper rounds. Think of these like pepperoncini slices. I would recommend if you can still get your hands on some fresh chilies, I would use those as opposed to the uh, pre-roasted because, again, it's going to be a textural issue. This is a very basic fermented pepper recipe. You can use your hatch chilies. You can use Anaheim's if you want a nice mild condiment. You can use jalapenos or serranos if you want something a little bit spicier. You're going to need about a pound of fresh green chilies, your choice single variety or a mix if you want, a couple of garlic cloves peeled and sliced. And optionally, if you're choosing very mild peppers, um, like if you're going for Anaheim's or some of the more mild hatch chilies, you may want to throw in a really hot pepper like a ghost pepper or a habanero uh, just to bring some more heat to your ferment. Optional, but something to think about. What you're going to want to do is slice all your peppers crosswise into one quarter inch thick rings. You can shake out the loose seeds from the rings if you want. The more seeds you leave in, the spicier your pickled pepper rings will be. Leave the really spicy pepper whole if you want because it'll be easier to fish it out later. And then uh, in order to actually make this ferment, you want to add about half your garlic slices to the bottom of a perfectly clean wide mouth mason jar. One wide mouth quart jar should fit this just about perfectly. Top with about half your pepper slices and then uh, add the rest of your garlic. If you're using it, add the one really spicy chili and then top with the rest of your green chili rounds. Top everything with a 4 to 5% brine. Work any bubbles out so the brine gets down and in around your pepper slices. Weight everything down well and cover loosely with your lid. Ferment this for about seven days, burp daily, and then check your flavor. If you don't notice a nice fermentation tang at that point, you can ferment for an additional week or even more until the flavor has developed to your taste. When the flavor is good, refrigerate. All right, my last idea, my last concept for how you can use some of your hatch green chilies is a fermented roasted green chili sauce. So this is kind of a more mild version of Tabasco. It's going to be a fermented green chili sauce that starts with a fermented pepper mash, which is just a grind up of peppers and other vegetables. And then uh, once your pepper mash is fully fermented, we're going to mix it with vinegar and some seasonings and strain. So a little more involved than the first recipes that I've mentioned, but not at all complicated. So what you're going to want to do is start with one small yellow onion, three cloves of garlic, and two or three cups of your chopped roasted mild green chilies. Puree everything together in the food processor so it's very uniform and small. And then weigh the total weight of that pepper mash in grams. Do some simple math going for a 10% weight uh, in salt. So if you've got 2,000 total grams of your pepper mash or two kilograms, 10% of that is going to be 200 grams. So this is a lot of of salt. That's very normal with pepper mash ferments. Um, they are more prone to mold than other ferments. And so we do a higher salt content. So just whatever you're doing, work in grams, it's very easy. Multiply by 0.1 to get your 10%. And whatever that is, that's going to be how many grams of salt to add. You can use any kind of salt you want and mix everything together really well. Place the mash inside an appropriately sized, very clean jar, leaving uh, at least an inch of headspace. More is probably a little better for this one. Weight down your ferment. If you can, uh, you probably won't be able to. This is a difficult ferment to weight down, but don't worry about it because we put a real nice load of salt in there. So that's going to help make sure that you don't have problems with scum or mold growing on the surface of your pepper mash. 
So standard fermentation, you know, lid, and then watch for signs of CO2 buildup. Burp your jar at least daily and uh, at least daily stir the pepper mash in so the surface of the pepper mash gets pushed down more to the center. This will, again, help to prevent scum or molds from forming on the surface. In terms of aging, your pepper mash can ferment for several weeks. Um, you can actually even go several months on this. You're looking for a flavor that is tangy but quite mellow compared to what you started with. And then at that point, you can blend your fermented pepper mash about one-to-one, one part pepper mash to one part vinegar. You can use white vinegar or apple cider vinegar. I think apple cider vinegar is a little bit better flavor, and that will make a tangy vinegar-based hot sauce. If at that point the hot sauce is just still too strong, too salty, uh, too powerful, you can just add in more vinegar. You can also add in a little bit of white sugar that will help mellow the flavor too. And if you want to add any additional seasonings at this point, you can. So Brandon, there's some ideas to get you started, ways you can use your hatch green chili harvest in a, a fermentation preserve. I moved pretty quick through this. We've covered basic fermentation concepts really thoroughly on the Survival Podcast already. But if anything I said, I just moved too fast or you weren't quite sure what I was referring to when I talked about salt levels or brine levels, just leave a comment below and I can get back to you with some specific advice or specific links that can answer your questions. All right, guys, that's it for me this week. Again, this has been Erica with Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com. Thanks so much for your questions, Jack. Thank you. And I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. If I wasn't chewing on a piece of bill tongue while I listened to that, I'd be real hungry right now, and I'd have to go get something to eat before finishing up. Fortunately for me, I did just have the last stick of bill tongue from the batch I made that I didn't put away. Yeah, I, I vacuum sealed up like five bags of it and put it in the deep freezer so I would leave it alone. I left myself like four sticks out. The last stick just bit the big one, or I guess I bit the stick. I guess the way to look at it, but... uh It's gone, and that's good, too, because I'm going to talk about cooking for my piece today. This won't take me real long, and that's why I chose it for today's Anchor segment, but I think it's something that can benefit a lot of people. Uh, it's a problem that isn't, and it's also a question that is valid because lots of people ruin vegetables when they cook them. So Kiernan says to me, hi, Jack, my question is, what is the best method to find the sweet spot with cooking green vegetables so as to be sure to kill any worm eggs or micro larvae that might be on the surface or penetrated to the inside of the vegetables while not killing the vitamins and nutrition by overheating or overcooking. Also, is this sweet point best achieved by slow cooking at a lower temperature or fast cooking at a higher temperature? Thanks. Regards, Kiernan. Uh, Kiernan, first of all, like I said, there was a problem that wasn't. Overcooking vegetables and ruining their quality, that's a problem. Micro larvae and, 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 and insect eggs is not a problem. Let me ask you a question. Do you cook your salad, Kiernan? And, oh, yeah. Wow. So, like, if I'm going to make spinach and I'm going to cook spinach, right, I, I might use that spinach raw in a salad. You see what I mean? Like, broccoli would be another vegetable that people ruin all the time, but we all have seen those uh, those trays at the... Uh, Like the you go to a party and somebody brings vegetables so that everybody feels good about eating all the cookies and cakes and stuff at the holidays. And they have like carrots and celery and, and broccoli. So do you do you worry about micro larvae in the broccoli? I don't. I just it's more protein really. Um, 
Here's a little gross fact, and, and you'll, you'll have much better results growing your own food. The average American who eats a standard processed food diet eats on average just in cockroaches two cockroaches a month. And that's cumulative just to drive the point home. You don't actually eat a roach. You eat little bits and pieces of roaches that get into the, yes. Um, I had a friend that worked for a spaghetti sauce factory. Actually, he was a friend of a fam family. So I was a kid and he was an adult. And I won't say the brand of spaghetti sauce because it's probably true about all of them. But he basically said as long as the maggot count was low, low enough, they just went on with their day. This was the early 80s, and things might be a little bit better now, but my point is, if you're eating food out of the grocery stores, you're eating bugs and bug parts and things like that. It's it's getting in there. And a lot of the processed food is processed at high temperatures, and uh, there's no real health risk to it, but you're eating it. Now, um, if you're eating, let's say, broccoli that you're stir-frying out of your garden, or cauliflower that you're stir-frying out of your garden, though I don't know why anybody eats cauliflower, uh, or carrots that you've shaved up real thin or squash that you've made into zoodles or whatever it is out of your garden, I, I guess there might be some little bugaboo there that you can't see or wash off, but I just wouldn't worry about it. So that's that part of the question I'm going to ignore. I'm not beating you up for it. I'm just going to tell you I don't care, and I don't think you should either. However, especially when you're cooking green vegetables, it is so easy to ruin green vegetables. The best way to find the sweet spot is honestly to cook the vegetable alone first. And so what I mean by that is if you want to start including spinach or sweet potato greens as a spinach substitute during the summer in your stir-fry vegetables, the best thing you can do is learn to cook those as a single ingredient so that you know what they look like when they're done to your liking, which is pretty much going to be as soon as they wilt, they'll be hot and they come out of the pan. That's the very last thing. Um, when, when I cook something like water spinach, where we take the leaves and the stem, I actually separate it into two components, and I cook the stems first, and then I add the greens at the end and wilt them and get it out. And, and what I do... Any time that I'm making any kind of a vegetable dish, if it's going to be multiple vegetables, unless they just happen to be vegetables that cook kind of at the same rate of speed, is I, I cut them all up into groups and I, I time them as they go into the pan. So let's say I was doing something like this. I was going to do uh, carrots and peppers and water spinach. Because that'll give me a, you know another level. Let's say I'm going to do carrots, peppers, green beans, and regular spinach. Because that might be more. You know, I don't know how many people are growing water spinach yet um, out there, but let's say that's what I was going to do. Well, the carrots are the 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 vegetable that needs the greatest amount of time. Now they're not green, but it kind of still fits the whole thing. And then your peppers could be green, or they could be red and yellow, or whatever. But they're going to need to cook a little bit longer. Um, then your greens, but they're going to cook about the same amount of time as a green bean. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, if I'm, let's say I'm doing this as a wok thing, I'm going to get my wok screaming hot. Ve vegetables are best cooked hot and fast because that's the only way that you can get to a point where 
These are done and get them out. So I'm going to throw those carrots in, and I'm going to toss them around in that walk, either by doing the walk toss thing, or now that i got a big, heavy cast iron walk, I'm going to use a couple uh, you know, spatulas or something like that. I'm going to toss those around until they start to turn bright orange. I'm going to throw my peppers in there, and I'm going to just toss those around a little bit like that with the green beans at the same time. So the peppers, the green beans, the carrots going now. And when I, when I feel like everything's kind of where I want it, I'm going to kill the heat if it's a walk because it's going to retain heat really well. And I'm going to throw those greens in there, and I'm going to stir that around until they wilt. Now, the key is I'm going to get that out of that pan very, very quickly because the retained heat is going to continue to cook those vegetables. So if I'm going to be serving this on a plate where people are like you know family style, so to say, then I'm going to get that into a bowl, and I'm not going to cover it. And I'm going to cook that. Like, my meat is already going to be resting when I start cooking it because vegetables, they don't take long to cook, right? Not this kind of, not green vegetables. Like potatoes, maybe we could do roasted carrots, roasted potatoes. That might take a while. But these fast dishes, those, those vegetables are going to start to cool down very, very quickly. So if I want them served at a temperature that's pleasing to the palate, I'm going to have the meat done when I start stir-frying those vegetables. Because we can serve that meat at room temperature, and people will be very happy with it. But we don't want to serve, because that's what it'll be. It'll, it'll still be warm. But if we leave those vegetables set aside while we take 15 minutes to cook meat, those vegetables are going to be like ice cold to the taste, and they're not going to be very pleasing. So we're going to get it into a bowl and onto the table. If, we're, if I'm going to just serve everybody a plate, or it's just me and my wife, so it's only two plates, I'll have the meat sitting there. It's rested. Meat portion goes on the plate. And it'll come straight out and onto the plate, and we'll go ahead and eat. Um, there's lots of different seasonings and flavorings you can do with your vegetables, but you know, m kind of my favorite thing is using either bacon grease, uh, coconut oil. I'll use olive oil depending on how long and hot I have to cook it, because if you cook olive oil too hot, it can get scorched. Uh, peanut oil is kind of my go-to hot temperature oil if I need a straight oil, uh, and, and you know, one of those salt and pepper. And vegetables are delicious as they are. Uh, but you can you know, throw a little soy sauce. You can throw a little bit of pepper sauce. Whatever it is, you take it to the oriental side of things. You can, you can just take it very classic salt, pepper, garlic. You know, it's up to you. Uh, if you're going to include onions and garlic in your stir fries, and that's a really great thing to do, you want to go in with your onions first, cook them down that are translucent, then hit your garlic and start bringing your other vegetables in right away. Because if you don't, You cook garlic too long by itself where it's in direct contact with the metal and nothing else to dissipate the heat. It will scorch and burn on you. If you want to use green onions with your stir-fried vegetables, I highly recommend this, by the way. What you want to do is slice them on a bias, which means on an angle. And if you want to, you, there's plenty of YouTube videos by cooking people that can show you what I exactly mean. But thin sliced on a bias, you get a big pile of them. And those are something that I would say, even after the greens have been wilted down, the, the, the heat's killed You throw them in then and just kind of stir them through and let them warm gently. Uh, I usually like to take thin-sliced chili pepper, thin-sliced onion, or thin-sliced sweet pepper uh, for color if the person that's eating it doesn't want hot peppers, and add those to the top of stir-fried vegetables as well, uncooked. Uh, and then you can stir that in yourself with the residual heat kind of to warming them through. And that gives a contrast in flavors uh, and gives color. And color is what makes vegetables very appealing And so more color to your vegetables, even if you're doing straight greens, thin sliced red pepper or red chili at the end on top of that makes the person who's eating it enjoy it more. And I just realized I went 10 minutes on how to cook freaking vegetables, but that's because I like to cook. 
Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show and all the great information uh, from the expert council. I want to remind you here at the end that you can support this show and the work I do really, really easily. All you have to do is when you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com first. When you get there, you can check out all the different reviews of items of the day that I do with my reviews on Amazon as an affiliate. And you can get on over and shop from there. And no matter what you buy, if you do that, you help support the show and the work that we do. Today's item of the day is... Uh, Hatotempt, Hatertempt, I guess, Hatertempt, Hatotempt. I don't know how to say the name of it. It's Hatertempt as far as I'm concerned. Hatertempt, dried mealworms. I do know how to say dried mealworms. So the way I ended up finding this brand of mealworms is, you know, I own poultry, and I'm, I'm not going to feed my ducks mealworms because there's 150 of them, and I would go broke trying to feed them mealworms, even as a treat, just too many birds. But when they're ducklings, I usually do give some mealworms as part of their, their brooding and growing up. It helps diversify their nutrients and things like that. And then the other thing is I have that aviary with all these little quail running around in it. And into that aviary, I have placed four bantam chickens. There's uh, one golden lace white annette and just four or three other uh, red red uh, bantam uh Bantam Cochrans, they're all Bantam Cochrans. Even the wide net is really a Bantam Cochran with the wide net uh, patterns. Really pretty little bird. And the purpose of those birds is they'll give me some little miniature duck, uh, little chicken eggs, which I enjoy eating. I ate my very first one from them. They're just old enough. Yesterday, one of them laid her first egg. But as they start laying, Bantam Cochrans become very, very broody. They're the second most broody breed on the planet. Bantam Silkies are probably about the only thing that is a more broody breed than them, and I just don't like silkies. I'm sorry. I know a lot of you love your silky chickens. I just think they're ugly, and these little bantams seem like perfect little birds to uh, brood quail for me. So my hope is when they start going broody, you know, I'll pop a dozen quail eggs under one, and she'll raise a dozen quail, and about the time those quail you know, get up to about six weeks of age with that perfect young tender meat quail, unless I need new layers, you know, I'll ban them when they're, when they're first born. <clears throat> so I can easily identify them from my main flock. And I'll just, you know, about the time they're six, seven weeks old, they won't really be hanging out with her anymore, and she'll be doing her own thing, getting ready to do a broody again. And they'll graduate to Bacon University. And so that's the plan for them. But I had, you know, I believe in function stacking, and even something like a chicken. So they also make compost for me in there. In there. I have a little compost bin that we put all our scraps in now, and they tear it up and make beautiful compost for us. But... My other thing I wanted out of bantam chickens are just they're just amazing little animals. Like I don't think I would eat chickens if all chickens were like bantam chickens. They're too much like pets. They really are. Now when they get old enough, I guess you know we'll call them and all, but I, I don't think I could you know run a meat operation on bantam chickens. They get very affectionate, especially if you form a bond with them. So I wanted something to feed these little birds. Every time I went out there, so they would get the view of, like, when the big doofus in the cowboy hat comes, it's good. We like the big doofus in the cowboy hat. And that happens a lot of times with chickens just because you're feeding them. But, you know, we have that operation set up so that we don't have to do a lot of work. And basically, there's never a time when they don't have food available. So just regular feed, you know. And chickens only get so excited over some scratch. So I thought, I thought well, I'll, I'll do... Mealworms, because my bigger issue was I wanted these birds not only to like me, but be easy to be picked up. And they do have to, you have to give a little effort to catch them. They don't quite run into your lap yet, but 
you know, they're not hard to catch. And that way when we have kids come, because we have customers bring their children. We occasionally have like a homeschool group come or something like that, and they want to tour the place. And the kids always want to, you know, pet an animal. Ducks are not about this. It's hard to catch a duck, and even when you do, you've upset it. You know, we try to only do that with the Muscovies once a year because they need their wings clipped. And if I could look at them and magically do that, I, I would. I would never I would never catch a duck for any reason other than I had to because it just upsets them. But the little chickens don't mind it. So I want these little chickens to be friendly, and I want them to be able to be here for the kids. Great. I'll use mealworms for this. I go down to Tracker Supply to get a big bag of mealworms. A big bag of mealworms down there is 1.8 pounds, and it's 20 bucks. <clears throat> I do the math and go, that's almost $12 a pound. I, I, I can buy freaking grass-fed porterhouse steaks for $12 a pound. I, and I, I, I understand that you get a lot of volume on a pound of mealworms because they're so lightweight being dehydrated. But I, I, I'm not paying porterhouse steak rates for a freaking worm to feed to a freaking chicken. I'm just not doing it. So I go on uh, Amazon and I find these ones from Hater Tempt uh, or Hatter Tempt, whatever the hell, however the hell you say it. The company out of New York, uh, New York State, and uh, they are twenty six dollars and ninety nine cents for five pounds. So I'm like, that's a better deal. I just ordered them. I kind of didn't really in my head understand what five pounds of mealworms look like. <laughs> it's a big bag, man. It's a huge bag. Uh, it lasts a long time. So. If you have a small flock, you know, a dozen birds or a couple dozen quail or something like that, and you want to diversify their diet and give them a treat and, and really do something that's very nutritious for them and, and definitely ups the quality of the eggs, this is the way to go. It's the best deal I've found. I did find a few options, including one on eBay that was less per pound, um, but they weren't a good product. Uh, a couple on Amazon that were a dollar or two less, when I read the reviews, people were like, it's like mealworm meal. It's like all ground up. It's like pieces. Like it's like they sell the good ones to the pet industry, and then whatever's left in the bottom of the bin, they sell as you know for a bag dried product. Um, I, I don't want that because I want a full product for the animal because the animals enjoy eating it like that. And the ones on eBay, I did buy some, and that was exactly it was like mealworm powder. I it wasn't even really usable because a lot of it was so fine that they didn't even really. I ended up feeding it to the fish uh, because when it floated on the water, the little fish ate it. Anyway, um, this is a great product, great price. They do sell a 10-pound bag, and it will save you, let's see, I did the math. If you buy the 10-pound bag, it will save you a whopping $2.99. Um, I'm going to recommend that you really think about if you need 10 pounds at a time. You know, they're fresh when they come and all, and they do dry out more over time. The back Ziplocs. Important note on that, my most recent bag is about empty. I had to order more today. That's why I went ahead and did this review. It made me think of it. Um, but the reason it didn't last as long as it usually did is I didn't quite ziplock it right, and I keep it in the aviary tucked in behind one of the uh, aquaponics racks. Something happened somehow, and the bag fell over, and it opened. And I think my little chickens and quails had a tummy ache because they devastated it. Uh, so if you're going to do that, I recommend keeping it ziplocked. I am actually, I've got some little two-gallon pails from Lowe's with lids. The next bag that comes in, I'm going to put it in one of those pails. That way I know it'll be safe. Uh, and if, you, uh, if you're going to leave it out somewhere, I wouldn't leave it like out somewhere where critters can get to it because the dogs the dogs eat mealworms and like raccoons and shit will get into mealworms. So. And ants, you got to keep it closed. I've also had problems not keeping it closed with like a million ants ending up in there. So you have been warned. 
Now, uh, just again, if you want to get those, great. If not, remember, whenever you do your online shopping, tspaz.com, you support the show. doesn't cost you anything extra, no extra money, not even really any extra time to do for me. All right, so next up is the song of the day. The song of the day, of course, is from the Bad Out of Hell album. We are up to the fourth track off the Bad Out of Hell album, celebrating its 40th year. Uh, if you grew up with this music, when you hear that the, the Bad Out of Hell album came out in 1977, that was 40 years ago, it can't help but make you feel a little bit old. To me, it also makes you feel a little bit sorry. It makes you feel a little bit sorry for kids today that don't really have the kind of life that's talked about in this music. Running around with your friends, making out with the girl in the, in the front seat of the car. Uh, you know, we're going to be coming up soon playing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And somebody emailed me recently. I don't remember who it was, but he said, I, I, I feel for kids today because they, they've never had a car with a bench seat and Paradise by the Dashboard Light just doesn't make that much sense without a bench seat, uh, in a car or a truck. I, I kind of got a chuckle out of that and gave me some, Flashback, good flashback memories to my high school years. But this song actually might, in some ways, pertain more to our current teenagers than it does, and you know, early twenty-somethings than it does to us from my generation that lived with this music. But it very much pertains to us. All revved up and no place to go. You know, I remember being in those small towns, you know, and just like we want to go do something, man. We want to go do something and. It's just not much to do, and so you cruise up and down the main drag all night long, you know, dun dun, right? <laughs> you mean who remembers cruising? Do kids even cruise anymore? I, I don't know. I know I did when I was a kid. You'd be bored on a Saturday night, and go out and go cruising. We used to go to either uh, Shimokin, and then there was one other place we used to go to. I can't remember, but Shimokin was the the big cruising town where I grew up, uh, and I think it was as much driving up there as cruising around there. Like it gave you something to do. So there's that. Now, this song actually used to be called Formation of the Pack when it was first written uh, by Jim Steinman. And it was part of, again, the, one of the three thong songs from Bad Out of Hell that was part of his musical play, Neverland. And it's kind of, a, when, I, when I found the script on it, it's kind of right at the very beginning. And it, it's the, the whole getting the group together uh, that's part of this storyline. So I guess you can hear that in it. And there's definitely throwbacks to an older song by, I think it was the Chantels, leader of the pack, right? You hear, like, the son of a jackal, I was the leader of the pack in the song. There's a lot of tie-ins to earlier music in this song. The saxophone is incredible in this song. But I think we've all felt like this at some point. Like, I, am, I want to do something, and there's nothing to do. And definitely growing up in the 70s and the 80s. You might have had that old beat-up car. You might have even had some gas money. But if you live in Jabip, where are you going to go except downtown Jabip, right? So we've all been there. So what I thought was neat is I did some research on the song. And, like, it's not on Song Facts as an individual song. I couldn't really find, you know, what Steinman really thought about it. But what I found was on uh, Wikia, there's a fan Wikia for Jim Steinman. And listed with this song is an intro speech from the 1977 tour. Now, if you've ever been to a Meatloaf concert, it's not like your typical concert. It's like an opera meets a musical meets a rock concert. And there's a lot of like spoken intros to songs and stuff like that. Of course, 
The Wolf with the Red Roses. Well, we, everybody knows I could saw the album. But here was the intro speech done in the 1977 tour by, you know, verbal talking before the song started. I figured that'd be a great way to introduce this song 40 years later. So here we go. Friday night. Friday night. You're at home. You're in front of your TV. You're listening to your radio. Your hand, your hand starts to turn numb. That's your left hand. Then your right hand. You're up. You're up. You're out of your chair. You don't quite know where you're going. You're walking around. You're walking around your living room. Then you walk into your bedroom. Then you walk into your bathroom. You don't know what you're doing. Your feet, your feet, your feet begin to turn numb. Your head, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood in your hand. The head, your head. You think you're going crazy. The situation, the situation has got you. You're out of control. The blood in your head, the blood in your head, it begins to pulse. It begins to pulse. It begins to pulse and pulse and pulse, 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 pulse. Ah, ah, you think you're going crazy. You think you're going to go crazy. Pulse, pulse, pulse. You're all revved up with no place to go.